Professor Terry Walls is one of our keynote speakers at the 6th Bioceuticals Research Symposium to be held in Melbourne from the 27th to the 29th of April 2018. She is Clinical Professor of Medicine at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. She's a published researcher and she's a patient with multiple sclerosis, which confined her to a tilt recline wheelchair for four years. This is Dr. Terry Wall. I'm pleased to announce that I'll be coming to Australia April 2018. I'll be speaking at the biophysical event. I'll be talking about dietary approaches to managing multiple sclerosis related fatigue and multiple sclerosis symptoms. I'll also be talking about the latest non-drug-based interventions we can use to reduce symptoms, improve quality of life for those with multiple sclerosis and other autoimmune conditions. It will be a fabulous event. You will not want to miss it. Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Dr. Terry Walls. She's actually Clinical Professor of Medicine at the Carver College of Medicine, University of Iowa in Iowa City. There she teaches internal medicine to residents in their primary care clinics. She also does research and has published over 60 peer-reviewed scientific abstracts, posters and papers. In addition to being a doctor though, She's also a patient with a chronic progressive disease. She was diagnosed with relapsing, remitting multiple sclerosis in 2000, around the time she began working at the university. Suffice it to say that Professor Walds has probably the most inspirational story of how integrative medicine can work when a dedicated patient takes control of their condition. You can find out more about the WALS protocol, a radical new way to treat all chronic autoimmune conditions using paleo principles. Welcome to FX Medicine. Professor Terry WALS, how are you? Hey, I am excellent. And I'm so glad to have the chance to chat with you and your tribe. Look, I'm, I've got to say, I am so excited that you're coming out to Australia uh, in t- April 2018 to speak at the Bioceutical Symposium. First, I want to go through your career up until your diagnosis. Did you always have this interest in integrative medicine or were you a standard doctor? Oh, you know, I was a standard doctor. I could figure out why people were wasting their money. I thought it was all a bunch of hooey. And, you know, when I was diagnosed with MS, being a conventional doc, professor of medicine, I, uh, of course, went to drug therapy. I sought out the best uh, center that I could find, which was the Cleveland Clinic which has an international reputation, saw the best people, took the newest drugs, and still steadily declined so that within three years, I converted to the progressive form of MS, uh, needed a uh, decline wheelchair, and uh, you know, was switched to uh, Celsept, uh, Mitoxantrone, and then Tizabri, that uh, very potent new biologic drug, and continued to decline. That's when I... Gosh, you know, things are looking really grim. I, uh, the best medicine couldn't stop all of this. 
And so I started reading, uh, and I would begin experimenting upon myself. And that's when I discovered integrative medicine and functional medicine. So you knew, obviously knew about MS from your training, but take us through how you felt upon being diagnosed and becoming not the doctor, but the patient. What was the change, the flip? Well, you know, as I was going through this, um, I actually was wanting to have a rapidly fatal disease. I did not want to become disabled. And so I was rooting for ALS. So I knew that would be rapidly fatal. Right. Um, I didn't want to have MS and end up uh, chronically disabled. Um, but of course, you know, I, I, I developed, uh, was diagnosed with MS. Uh, and so I was going to treat my disease aggressively. At first, I, you know, I was very agitated, but reading the literature, I saw how uh, the progressive nature of the illness, the high probability of uh, being fatigued, unable to work, uh, and the uh, risk of becoming demented uh, by my illness. And all of that was uh, very distressing uh, to read about. I could imagine. But being a patient, or in, in fact, can I just ask about the initial symptoms that you felt? Was it this, uh, you know, quite an acute onset, or was it mm-hmm. a gradual, insidious uh, increase in symptoms? Well, during medical school, I developed episodes of electrical pain involving my face. These episodes would come on uh, sort of randomly. They were more likely to occur if I was sleep-deprived under high levels of stress. I... And, you know, I ignored them for a while. I eventually saw a neurologist. No clear diagnosis. I was treated with a variety of drugs and developed drug rashes. None of them worked. And so I was like, okay, I just have to tough out these episodes of increasingly uh, horrific pain. Then I, uh, four years later, had an episode of dim vision in my left eye. Again, a big workup. No clear etiology. Um, and my episodes of pain became more and more frequent, more severe. Uh, Thirteen years later, I had wow. problems with my left leg and weakness. And my athletic uh, stamina had been steadily declining, but I was just like, I'm just getting old and apparently not training hard enough. <laughs> and that's when I was uh, diagnosed with MS. And actually, I was sort of relieved, like, okay, uh, so I guess I wasn't a slug after all that my deteriorating athletic performance had nothing to do with my <laughs> lack of uh, training. Unfortunately, I have nothing to blame but myself. But um, I, I'm intrigued with that dimming in vi- of vision with the, the paresthesias, the, the, the neurology, neurological symptoms that you had. Yeah. Were the doctors suspecting MS well, back then? Well, they didn't tell me. You know, and I, I clearly, in retrospect, there was enough there that I could have made the diagnosis made the diagnosis of MS. And uh, I'm so grateful that they did not because I might not have had my kids. Right. I would have been much more reluctant to have children. Uh, uh-huh. And so, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful right. that my doc did not tell me about that MS was a uh, possibility. So I think we need to delve into, uh, you know, what is MS? So MS, Right now, it's classified as an autoimmune condition where our immune cells are attacking brain structures and particularly causing damage to the myelin, which is the insulation on the wiring between brain cells. We now know that in addition to that, these episodes of inflammation causing the acute symptoms, there's this progressive damage to the wiring 
themselves and the brain cells so that the brain shrinks, the spinal cord shrinks, and there's this uh, progressive loss of function, uh, increased risk for cognitive decline uh, as well. Uh, and though we have drugs that turn off the inflammation, we don't have drugs that stop the neurodegeneration. Hmm. Yeah, and that's you know part of why I think uh, diet, lifestyle, integrated medicine uh, is so incredibly powerful. So that's what you need to do to uh, stop the neurodegeneration, to restore mitochondrial health. You know, and that's the, the stuff I'll be discussing when I'm at the uh, conference. In your mind, what was that moment? Where you thought, ah, oh, to hell with it! I'll I'll research this and I'll I'll try something that you know has no proven benefit, like a drug. Um, what was the mind, the decision? Well, you know what had happened. I I was in a wheelchair. I am getting steadily worse uh, despite taking the best drugs. And I'm like, uh, I, I'm going to start reading science. I know how bad it is. I can't be any more depressed. Uh, so I, at first I read the basic science. I'm looking at drug studies, and then I have an aha moment. Like, well, this is crazy. I can't access these drugs for 10 to 20 years. I should read about things that I could access. And so that got me down the path of vitamins, supplements, uh, lifestyle kinds of things. Uh, and I would begin experimenting on myself. And you know, gradually I, I would figure out that. Uh, the vitamins and supplements were uh, improving my energy ever so slightly. They weren't necessarily stopping my decline, but I could tell if I didn't take them, my fatigue and brain fog was much worse. So it was very energized. Like, okay, I'm figuring stuff out that my conventional primary care neurology docs are not telling me. You know, and that was uh, 2004. I have to go back to your diagnosis your progression of symptoms, you were still doing medicine. You you used to be in a reclining wheelchair. I never uh, uh, went on disability, never went on retirement. Uh, I, I was very blessed at the university. I kept redesigning my job so I was able to continue working. I uh, had an administrative position. I also uh, was doing um, work on the Institutional Review Board the committee that reviews research. Yeah. Uh, and I I asked to review the cases related to uh, neurology and psychiatry research, which got me more comfortable reading uh, about clinical trials and basic science and clinical studies uh, in involving the uh, brain-related issues. And that made me more comfortable with experimenting on myself. That must have taken an incredible amount of fortitude to be able to carry on in the in the face of adversity, not just within yourself, but also how your colleagues, your medical colleagues would have viewed you, uh, you know, this, this, are you a colleague or a patient? How was that treatment? Well, what, what were you viewed like? You know, what, what really made it possible for me to get through all of this was that, you know, I had two children, two very young kids, and... Well, I had originally thought I was going to teach them uh, strength and resilience through athletic endeavors and, you know, mountaineering and kayaking and backpacking. Of course, that wasn't going to happen. But they were still watching me. And so I could either model resilience that I was going to get up and keep cheering on no matter how difficult life became, 
or I could model giving up when things got hard. Uh, and so I would give myself little pep talks about, you know, your kids are watching, you just get up, you're going to go to work, or you're going to do your little small workout every day that you can, um, because this is what is going to be required. Yeah. I, and that I would then, uh, uh, write, uh, uh, teach the medical students about, uh, being evaluated for MS and then coming to terms with progressive disease and reimagining your life and what that informed me as a physician, that function is really, uh, incredibly important, not just diagnosis that we need to be sending our patients physical therapy, occupational therapy, yep. everything that we, we can to maintain their function to the highest uh, possibility. I would imagine that that would have made a huge impact on their medical lives as well. You know, actually, uh, those lectures uh, have been the highest rated lectures in the medical school history. Wow. Uh, even even still. When I made the decision uh, to uh, give a, uh, those lectures a very intimate look at uh, going to the work of being diagnosed, being treated, and reimagining my life. My uh, chief of staff at the time and my chairman called, they both called me into their office, really told me I should never do this. It was completely unprofessional. You don't discuss your personal life. It's like taking your clothes off in front of the medical students. You just don't do this. But obviously, in the end, I decided this was really important to do. I did it anyway. Mm. I, and that was incredibly popular. I and ended up having uh, a few more clinicians uh, do similar lectures. Uh, yeah, and so I ended up breaking uh, some big taboos here about that. But I think those taboos need to be broken because there's nothing like a medico yes. treating a medical student about that intimate relationship with the disease. Yes, yes. It's very powerful. When you started experimenting with things, I mean, this is a massive section yes. and you're going to be discussing this at length and in detail at the Biocidical Symposium, but what were the standout things that you learned? And indeed, so, did you did you learn yeah. anything that you thought, oh, this isn't of any value at all? Well, you know, some of the sequences, I uh, was told about the paleo diet. And so after 20 years of being vegetarian, I switched to a paleo diet two years after my diagnosis. Hmm. Continued to decline anyway, uh, but I said, okay, at least I'm doing something uh, because that low saturated fat Mediterranean diet clearly um, had not been helpful. Uh, and then I started doing vitamins and supplements, and those uh, improved my cognition a little bit and certainly improved my energy, but I was still declining. And then I discovered functional medicine had a longer list of supplements. It sort of flattened out the decline. And then I had this really big aha that I should reorganize my paleo diet to stress the nutrients that I was taking in full form. And when I did that, the speed of my recovery was stunning. Did you say to stress the nutrients? Yeah. So I, I designed the paleo diet in a very structured way, which I'll talk a lot about when I'm there, to maximize vitamins, minerals, uh, antioxidants, right. uh, essential fatty acids, yeah, and uh, the phytonutrients that would boost my detoxification pathways and intracellular antioxidant production. When I did all of that, it was that 
way more powerful than supplements. Yeah. I mean, targeted supplements can be, can be very helpful. Absolutely. But not with a McDonald's diet. But, but <laughs> that's right. You, you can't supplement your way out of a bad diet lifestyle. <laughs> you can supplement your way to accelerate the uh, impact of healthful eating and lifestyle. But it won't fix, you know, a, a fast food, sedentary lifestyle. I also want to point out, you know, I really love the paleo diet, but that was not enough to fix me. We really have to be very thoughtful about how we structure a diet, whether it is a low saturated fat diet, vegan diet, uh, vegetarian diet, paleo diet, ketogenic diet. And there are a, a lot of these diets are put together with a philosophical point of view, but no, they don't necessarily understand the uh, nutritional requirements, nutritional density, or how to design those diets to maximize nutrition for your brain cells and your mitochondria. And once I, I, I made that change, the speed of my recovery really was breathtaking. So in a year, I went from to recline wheelchair to biking 20 miles. Now, Terry, obviously having a medical knowledge empowers you to ask questions and to choose or even direct therapy. But how does this translate to lay people who are diagnosed with MS or naturopaths who have a patient coming in with a diagnosis of MS? What can they get, say, from, for instance, your book? Actually, yeah, I've written my book in a very uh, lay-friendly way uh, to let them know what are the diet and lifestyle things that science says are associated with improved quality of life, uh, improved energy, improved mental clarity, reduced inflammation, that they could do working with their family and their primary care doc. They don't need their specialist uh, assistance to eat more vegetables. They don't need their specialist assistance to get motivated to want to do stress reduction or uh, to begin a uh, exercise program. Uh, it's helpful to work with their primary care doc. And so I really wrote this as a guide for the lay person to begin using diet and lifestyle to create more health and vitality in their lives, which as a side effect will likely reduce their symptoms, likely reduce the need for prescription medication, uh, and likely normalize blood pressure, likely normalize blood sugar. And in, in our clinics, certainly what we see is Many people are able to reduce, eliminate many prescription drugs, including disease-modifying therapies, because their autoimmune disease becomes dormant. When you're talking about a patient embarking on this journey of recovery, especially given that many patients will be already on drug therapy, and especially given that many of them will have bad lifestyle habits. How do you change that? Like, what, what's, what's um, the key, do you think, that you can impart? We, we create attraction. You create hope. You see the possibilities. And for some, it'll be like they can't imagine it. They're pre-contemplative and, and can't do anything about it. The... The, the ability to change must come from within. And in order to change, they, that person has to see that it's possible, have meaning in their lives, have a purpose, understand what they want their health for, and be willing to begin the journey one step at a time. It, it obviously is easier if the whole family does it together than have one person begin these habits Hmm. In the midst of everyone else, continues to eat a uh, poor diet 
can have a very uh, unhealthy lifestyle. Do you then include the family in visitations to to show them what you're going to be embarking on? Yeah, Absolutely. We include the family both in our clinical trials. We do the clinical trials. And we include the family in the uh, clinic visits as well. I love the fact that you talk about attraction versus avoidance. Um, Dr. Lise Altschler, um, she's got a beautiful way of looking at that, that fear of death. And she, she talks about, well, if, if you're scared of dying, doesn't that mean that you love living? So how powerful do you find this attraction to something that you want, but you might be fearful of you know, the opposite? How powerful do you find that? Creating change. Uh, always requires attraction. Most parents realize that we have to, kids uh, run their own lives, uh, so you have to create incentives for them to want to do the things that you want, otherwise life is miserable. So you reward and and create uh, rewards and attraction to get the behaviors that you want. And uh, when we are uh, uh, in clinics, I will do my introductory lecture, uh, to large uh, the public, people who are ready and interested in going on this journey can then sign up for a series of group classes uh, and group visits where we take them on that journey. Uh, and we have, uh, I'd say, 75 to 90% of the folks who would come to our introductory lecture are inspired enough, willing to go on the journey, do the work, and begin the group classes with us. But there'll be some who say, like, I'm not ready, it's not the right time, uh, and we don't work with them. They also come back uh, when they're ready. What about safety? What about the the issue that orthodox medical practitioners will have regarding the the purported safety issues of supplements maybe interfering with their drug therapy um, and worsening the prognosis for MS patients. Do you see any real issues? So, uh, you know, the big questions uh, that uh, the specialists want people on their disease-modifying drugs. Uh, my neurologist here uh, are really very clear that for the vast majority of folks newly diagnosed, newly diagnosed with MS, You can give them steroids acutely, get them recovered from their initial uh, episode. And then over the next three months, you have three months' worth of time to think through what treatments that you want, what disease-modifying treatment you want. So you could start with aggressive diet lifestyle intervention for three months and see how effective you are. And then decide, do you want to just stay with that lifestyle or add in the drug therapy? Some people will decide they want to do drug therapy right away and add diet and lifestyle to drug therapy. They can certainly do that. Uh, one of the things I'll talk about when I'm at the uh, biotechnical seminar is what is what the research says about when you could reasonably stop disease-modifying drugs and not increase your risk of relapse or mm. disease progression. Mm. What are those criteria? Yeah. And how you could use diet and lifestyle to make it much more likely you can get to that criteria that would let you reasonably discontinue the disease-modifying treatment. We don't want to get into an adversarial relationship with a specialist. That's not helpful for anyone. No. I, I want the person to feel comfortable taking drugs, not taking drugs, understanding 
what are what the science says about what are the criteria that you you could meet, and then you have no greater risk if you stop your your drug therapy uh, or continue the drug therapy in terms of relapse rate. And that's that's the big question both the, the conventional docs want to know and the public wants to know. When when could it be a, a reasonable to stop the drug without increasing my risk? You're obviously going to detail this at the symposium, but what advice can you give to practitioners when engaging in dialogue with neurologists regarding diet and lifestyle interventions and drug therapy? Well, the um, key thing is the specialist doesn't need to be an expert on diet and lifestyle. And you can tell them, look, we're going to address overall health and quality of life by improving the quality of the diet, addressing stress, addressing sleep, addressing physical activity. As a primary care provider, that's my area of expertise, my area of expertise. I'll take care of that for this patient. They can deal with you for the MS or autoimmune-related drugs and symptoms. And by optimizing diet and lifestyle, improving the quality of life, reducing the risk of obesity and other comorbidities, that improves the probability that the disease will be quiet and they can more quickly reach criteria to get off disease-modifying drugs. Well, and again, I'll talk about this in more detail and uh, review some of those uh, papers. I, th- I think this is going to be a, a key part of what practitioners can take away from the symposium. Can I ask, you know, we, we always talk about MS being a neurological issue, but it, it impacts on everything, every tissue that the nerve innovates. So what sort of other areas does any practitioner need to be aware of when dealing with patients well, with MS, like sensations, burns, wounds, um, exercise, e- even toileting and things like that? Early on, um, there's going to be a higher rate of becoming overweight obese, uh, uh, the person becomes overweight and obese, then all the other medical comorbidities will develop, uh, fatty liver disease, high blood pressure, atherosclerosis. If they become increasingly inactive, uh, then you can have uh, acceleration of all of those chronic disease states. If they become completely inactive, then you have to worry about wounds, um, uh, you'll have issues related to uh, urinary function, urinary incontinence, higher risk for infection. If they're on disease-modifying treatment, now you have to deal with the uh, side effects from uh, the various disease-modifying uh, treatment drugs. Uh, depression, uh, very, very common. Mm. Very, very common. Mm. There's, there, it, I mean, it truly is a multifactorial disease. Oh. It seems obvious now that we mention it, but people tend to compartmentalise things. And speaking with an expert coming from your personal experience with your disease and really taking charge of adversity and almost thumbing up, <laughs> just saying, well, I'm not, I'm not accepting of that prognosis. You are truly inspirational. I cannot wait to meet you at the... Sixth Bioceuticals Research Symposium in April 2018 in Melbourne. Well, I'm looking forward to coming to Australia. I'm looking forward to uh, presentation, a chance to meet you and interact with uh, 
um, all of the participants as well. Uh, it should be uh, very, very interesting, very engaging. Yeah. Professor Terry Walls, thank you so much for joining us on, on FX Medicine today. Thank you. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Registrations are now open for the 6th Bioceuticals Research Symposium to be held in Melbourne from the 27th to the 29th of April 2018. Keynote speakers will include Professor Terry Walls, Dr Amy Myers, Professor Yehuda Schoenfeld and Dr Elisa Song. Book your ticket now by visiting bioceuticals.com.au and clicking on the Education tab.